Amen. So we are going to be obviously in James chapter 2. And I know last time we were in James, we were done like 20 minutes early. And so I'm thinking we could probably still get done fairly early tonight, depending on how fast I talk. So, but like I, this is very important. Every single class, I want to continue to do this roadmap. Where have we come from in the book of James? I think one of the biggest things whenever we're going to scripture or a particular verse, we will divorce that verse from the context and from the entire purpose of that letter or that book of the Bible. And so what's important is to find out, okay, what has James already talked about? What are the issues in this letter? And so this isn't really a new slide other than the fact that we talked last time on chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, that the whole discussion James had was not if you had a faith that was living in the sense of it being true, genuine faith, but it was all about the profitability of faith. Does our Christian faith affect people in the world? And so nothing did James talk about short of verse number 18, which he used as a way of illustration. Nothing else has any soteriological insight, information, or emphasis. This is all practical Christian living. Hence the title that I called this series, you know, Inactive Faith, Living Your Faith in the Midst of Trials and Temptations. That as a Christian, that even though we may go through times of testing or trials or persecution, that we shouldn't shut ourselves up and become a recluse. We should still be there having an active faith for God, for Christ, so that people can see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. And so nothing has anything to do with soteriological emphasis. And the same thing for this evening. And so the biggest thing as far as this roadmap is concerned, this is the background, this is the context. So when we think of the different contexts that are involved, we talked about this a few weeks ago, your comment, you're familiar with your immediate context, your surrounding context. Most of the time, that's where people stop. We also have to remember that there's what's known as a book context. The book context is simply the book of the Bible. What is the context of that book, of that letter, if you will? So James wrote a letter for a reason. What is the overall context of the letter? Chapter and verses are great for references, but remember, that's man-made. That is not inspired. So if we were to read this without chapters and verses, we'd probably come away with a different understanding in many churches because we're not going to have these breaks. And so they're not natural. So the book context is very important. Then outside of that, you have what's known as the Bible context. This is what's known, really, I would put it under uh, systematic theology aspect, that what does the Bible as a whole talk about a particular topic? So tonight we're going to get into the passages in chapter 2, verse number 18 through 26. And basically, we're going to be focusing on, uh, in the verse where it says in verse 22, Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, talking about Abraham, and by works was faith made perfect. And in verse 24 it says, You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. We're really going to be looking at those two verses, looking at this passage as a whole from 18 through 26. But first I want to open it up. I want to ask, what is your understanding of this passage? Could be right, could be wrong, but I'm just curious. I want to see what is everybody's understanding so far. Has anybody studied this, looked at this? I mean, we could talk about what we've heard people say it is, 
But if you know me, I really, I'm not a big fan of what I heard people say it is. I'm more of that aspect of encouraging us all to be a Berean. And what have we truly studied to understand what it is? And so with that being the case, any thoughts, anybody that actually uh, has a thought on this passage? Specifically the aspect of Abraham was justified by works and that you're justified by works and not faith only. So, any thoughts? Okay, so, so like we were talking about before, you have what's known as positional justification and practical justification. You have an aspect of we are positionally justified, made righteous, if you will, positionally by our faith in Christ. And that's what puts us in the family of God. But then you have what's known as practical justification that a lot of people use. Practical justification means if, if you're doing something, you're justifying yourself in the fact that you truly believe what you're doing, if you will. And so there's different aspects, okay? Anybody else? It's a progressive thing. Okay. Okay. Well, you're, are you talking about more about that growing and becoming more like Christ aspect? Yes, yeah. Right. Right. Okay, which has a big role as far as discipleship's concerned. You know, for if I just got saved today, but I had nobody tell me what it looks like to, what it, what it means to look like Christ and what sin is a sin and, and things I need to shed. You know, yes, the Holy Spirit could be inside of me trying to convict me of certain things, but as a new believer, I might not be able to discern what's my mind, what's my conscience, what's the spirit, you know? So there's a newness to this as well. So like you were saying, Bill, this this progressive growth of sanctification uh, and the fact of becoming more like Christ as we go through this life. A lot of times we'll read Ephesians 2, 8, 9, where it says, by grace are you saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But then we stop there. But Paul goes on to say, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works that he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so really when we put verse 10 of Ephesians 2, 8, 9, yes, we are saved freely by the free gift of Jesus Christ and just by believing in the death, burial, resurrection of Christ for our sins, we are positionally justified. But in verse 10, he goes on to say, we weren't just saved just to be saved. We're saved to do things that God has prepared for us to do. This aspect of sanctification and growing, becoming more like Christ. And like Jesus says, being a light on a hill. That way people can see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. So any other thoughts? Well, I guess like hearing justification, hearing positional justification. Mm-hmm. Salvation, which is, uh, just 
that's one where you have to look at the semantic range of a word. Uh, like in English, the Greek would carry various meanings. And so the context would have to dictate what word is proper in that sense. Now, justified could be a sense of not necessarily talking about eternal life and salvation, soteriological. It could be more of a practical, sanctified aspect of it. It's like for the, it, the aspect of sanctification and sanctified. This was sort of like a light bulb that came on to me when I was reading somebody else's article. But Peter says to those believers there, you are sanctified. He doesn't say you're being sanctified. He doesn't say you need to go through the process of sanctification. He's saying you are sanctified, past tense. In understanding what the aspect of sanctification too, there's a present tense where we are trying to become more like Christ. But then there's that positional sense that we are sanctified in Christ, set apart as a Christian for him. And so that's where just understanding the words and finding out contextually what's the definition that best fits the context within the surrounding, the book, and the Bible. And that's where all those contexts play a role. Yeah. Uh, So, from what I recall, the Greek there is the one that's declared righteous. Okay, so that the common use of justification declared righteous. Now, we're going to get into that and look at some nuances of that in this particular passage. But what I really want to see right now is what's our preliminary thoughts of this passage. And so, uh, based off that, the other question I would have right off the bat is, could you even defend your position? I know for those of us that have said, you know, what we believe, you know, this passage means, could you defend it? Or could you just state it? And then if it was attacked, could you be able to rebut or object and say, no, 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 this is what it really means. And this is why I believe it says this. The big thing about me, many of you know that I, I really do not like regurgitation. And I do it at times, and I really hate myself when I do it, but there's too many times within Christianity that we will simply regurgitate a theology. We will regurgitate an understanding or a teaching. And we don't even know what that teaching truly means and entails. And so rather than actually reading the scriptures and trying to have the Holy Spirit illuminate the text, we're merely regurgitating what somebody says. A lot of time, if you ask somebody this passage or any other passage, most often people will say, oh, well, Dr. So-and-so says this. Very few people will say, they say, oh, well, James chapter 2 says this, and, it's, you know, you can look at Romans chapter 4, and most of the time they'll refer to authority. They'll refer to a person, a teacher, a preacher, whatever the case is. And I would just encourage us all to be cautious with doing that. Now, it's great to understand and learn from teachers and preachers, but like I try to tell all of us regularly, don't just take my word for things. Go behind and study these things out to see whether they are so. Acts 17.11, be that Berean. Because at the end of the day, you're going to give an account for what you believe and why you did things. Not me. You know, I'm going to give an account for what I believe and what I do. And so we got to make sure that what we're believing and what we're teaching and telling other people, that we actually looked into it. And we go to the judgment seat of Christ and be like... Jesus, I'm sorry, you know, this is just what I heard throughout time, and for 40 years I've said this, and it was completely wrong. And Jesus is like, 
Well, how much did you spend reading into that passage in that letter? Oh, Jesus, I just took Dr. So-and-so's word for it. I wrote that letter for you, too. You didn't even take time to read my letter. You see what I mean? The aspect, the emphasis on reading the scriptures ourselves. So, with that being the case, let's get into tonight. James chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. We're going to break this off in little chunks. James writes, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? And so there's that phrase again. There's this phrase of faith without works is dead. We talked a little bit about it, I think, last time. We're going to cover this at the end again as well. Remember what he just said in verse 16. At the end of verse 16, it says, If you give them not the things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? What does our faith profit if we're not actively using our faith in the community? And then we get into this passage. A man may say, You have faith, and I have work. Show me thy faith without thy works. When I first started really digging into this, I found something interesting out. There's a lot of disagreement about what James is trying to get across here, okay? You're going to see some words up here. So this right here in verses 18 through 20 is what's known as a diatribe. A diatribe is a rhetorical device. Basically, it's just, it's inserting a hypothetical argument or a hypothetical objection in objector to make a case. And so here, James is inserting this uh, rhetorical device to have this sort of side conversation inside of his conversation to make a point across. What's known as the interlocutor, that's basically somebody in the middle of a discourse. So in this case, in verses 18 through 20, we're figuring out, okay, James is writing the letter, he's talking, but then he brings in this diatribe. That diatribe is being spoken by somebody who is the interlocutor. And so what we find out is there's a wide disagreement as far as who this objector is. If the objector is actually agreeing with John, or trying to object John, there's quite a big disagreement as far as when James stops speaking and starts again, and when the objector speaks. And then there's a big disagreement as far as where quotations should be. Now, I want to show you some things. Now, if you have the King James Version translation, you will realize in your book, there are no, tra- no quotations. There are no quotations. But, if you were to read a few other translations there are quotation marks in there. You can see the New American Standard puts essentially all of verse 18 as one quotation, as one statement. The ESV only has that first part, which leads to James picking up the dialogue when he says, show me your faith. And so here you can see how with the New American Standard, it looks like the objector is saying all those things. But here on the ESV, it looks like only the objector is saying one thing, and then James is saying some others. What we have to understand are quotation marks are man-made in Scripture. 
quotation marks are added by the editors and the translators of Bible, of Bible translations. In the Greek, there was no way to capture a quotation mark as the symbol as we know of it. And so all quotation marks in scripture were added by translators. And you can see there's a disagreement. Now, I just pulled up a few translations. Most of them agree with one of these three, but there may be other nuances as well. Like the New Living Translation, it has like three sets of different quotation marks in there when you're getting through 18 through 20. So the big thing right off the bat, quotation marks, just like chapter and verses, they're added by translators and editing committees. I brought this principle out last time. When there's a clear disagreement amongst a passage and how it's supposed to be understood and interpreted, things like that, or when a passage seems to be somewhat vague to us and we're really trying to wrestle what does it say, or maybe it sounds like it might be teaching a works-based salvation, maybe the basic principle is to understand the unclear verses by what you truly know as being very clear. If we know salvation is a free gift, not of works, lest any man should boast, then we know that there can be no strings attached to it. And so you're taking an unclear verse and you're trying to figure out what it means, but it's going to be built upon the foundational premises of those clear passages. So like I said, for instance, if salvation is a free gift, if it's a free gift, there's no works that you can do to have, obtain, maintain, or lose. If we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion, and we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption, and that Jesus Christ promises us that we will never perish, neither can anyone pluck us out of his hands, then that means, guess what? The moment you and I place faith in Christ and the death, burial, resurrection of him, then that means you're a Christian, <laughs> like it or not. I was just watching a debate the other night, last night, matter of fact, it was on free grace versus lordship, and the one guy pulled out the fact that, say you have this couple, they've been married for like 40 years, whatever the case is, and, and he's a, he, he gets saved, but she doesn't get saved, she's still an unbeliever. She, they love each other so much, so much. She ends up dying as an unbeliever. And so this guy that loves his wife so much, more than God, says, I would rather go to hell to be with her in hell than to be with God in heaven. But I mean, that's an emotional draw. It's an emotional pull. And we've talked about that before when we talked about McNamara fallacies, how there's this emotional uh, fallacy that people use. But as a Christian, no matter what, we cannot send ourselves to hell because we have the assurance of our salvation based upon what Christ has done on the cross, based upon the fact that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit the moment of conversion, until the day of redemption, we will never lose our salvation. So it doesn't matter if you want to go to hell or not. As a Christian, I hate to say it, but I'm sorry, you can't go to hell. But it was one thing where this guy that was a lordship brought up this argument, and again, it's an emotional appeal fallacy that they're trying to pull your emotions, tug on your heartstrings, and say, if he doesn't want, then he's going to jump out of the Father's hand, and he's going to send himself to hell. When we look at the Bible context of what eternal life is, and that eternal life is eternal, then that can't happen. 
Now, if we were to live our life pretending like there's not a God and we're a Christian, oh, there's going to be a, quite a judgment that we're going to be standing for Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. And so there's a lot more to it. But back to our text here. When we're looking at this passage and we're trying to figure out, does works justify our salvation? We have to understand the clear passages first and use that as the foundations for these unclear ones that may have a varying viewpoint. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I want to give you at least three options on this passage, this diatribe specifically, 18 through 20. A man may say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith by your works. So there are at least three options on how this is understood. The first one is what's known as a reformed view. Essentially, James is saying that faith without works is a non-working faith regarding salvation. It does not prove, provide salvation. And so this is a common view of this particular passage. It says, oh, you, you say you have faith? Well, I can't see your faith because that's a metaphysical thing. I can't touch. I can't see. I can't taste your faith. So there has to be action to it. And if you don't have action or works for your faith, then you probably don't even have faith. So this is where a lot within the Reformed crowd or the Lordship crowd, they'll say that if you don't, do not do good works, if you are not bearing fruit, then you are not saved. You do not have a true faith. You do not have a genuine faith. Now they've go so far to say that they teach what's known as a spurious faith or a false faith, that God gives some people a faith that is fake, and it seems genuine to the person, but they actually aren't a true believer because they're not doing these works. So this is a common understanding from the Reformed crowd and the Lordship crowd on what this passage means. But that's not the only view. Remember a few weeks back we talked about why, why is the Reformed view so popular today? And we talked about what's known as the bandwagon fallacy. We've heard the term before, oh, you're an Alabama fan, oh, you're just jumping on the bandwagon because they won like 28 trophies or whatever, championships. That's essentially what bandwagon, you're just joining something because everybody else enjoys it and does it. That's what's happening with Reformed theology, and Pastor Ken talked a little bit about it this morning as well. When you look at all the universities, the colleges, and the seminaries, they're almost all Reformed. Most of them are Reformed. And when you have most of our, your universities with Reformed theology, guess what type of preachers you're going to get? Reformed preachers. And so there's a lot that I had to actually get rid of when I went to uh, Liberty. They, not, they weren't totally Reformed at that time or pushing it real hard, but you have others like the Master Seminary with MacArthur out there, totally Reformed, totally Covenant theology. And so there are more views to what James is saying. The thing about this view, again, when we looked at that original roadmap, where did we come from in the letter of James? Nothing that James talked about was soteriological. Nothing had to do with eternal life. It all had to do with living your faith actively, practical Christian living. So it would make no sense here, again, we talked about this, for James to question the validity or the genuineness of their salvation. It would not make sense contextually within this letter. The only thing James is questioning at this point, we see in verse 14 and verse 16, 
is, is your faith profiting anybody? That's what James is questioning. Not whether they have it, but is it helping anybody? And we looked at it last time that our faith should profit at least two groups. Number one, it should profit us. It should profit us so that we are becoming more like Christ, and then Jesus promises us rewards at the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ, and it should profit other people as well. That our faith should be outward to be able to minister to people, help people when they're in need, things like that. And so what James is talking about is the profitability of their faith, not the genuineness of it. But yet, sadly, this is the more often understood view because, again, the seminaries, the teachers, the preachers, and everybody else are coming from the Reformed viewpoint. There's a second view out there. This I've called the vindication view. This is what many people that, if you don't hold to lordship or reformed theology, you will typically hold to this view. Basically, with this vindication view, they will say, there's the argument that, okay, when we're looking at quotation marks, they're looking at the fact that the objector is objecting, saying, okay, you have faith and I have works. But then James replies to the objector and saying, okay, Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Again, it goes back to the aspect that faith is metaphysical. If you say you believe a parachute will save you from falling 30,000 feet out of a jump of an airplane, that's a metaphysical thing. But once you put that parachute on and you jump out of the airplane, now you've just proven that you truly believed what you said you believed because faith is metaphysical. Now when you're actually doing an action or doing a work, now you can actually see that yes, you do believe what you said you believed. And so this is a vindication view. Like I said, a belief cannot be seen alone. It has to be acted upon. Now what people will do with this view is they will go to Romans chapter four, verse number two. If we were to turn to Romans chapter 4, verse number 2, and I'll just read it real quick. We'll read in verse number 1, What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. So what people will say is they will say that our works will vindicate ourselves, will vindicate our belief. If we say we're a Christian and then we do good works, then we're like, okay, I'm backing up my words with my actions, all right? And it doesn't necessarily mean, hey, you can tell that I'm a true, genuine Christian by doing these good works. But if I'm a Christian, don't you agree that if I'm a Christian, I should be out there doing some good things, right? I mean, after all, that's what scripture says. But this vindication is not ever argued to be in front of God, Because by works, we can never vindicate ourselves before God. It's only by faith. But what they'll say is they'll say that this justification is justification only before men. And this is where you get the aspect of, well, you say you're a Christian, but you're an alcoholic, you're sleeping around, and you're married, and you're beating your kids. You say you're a Christian, but you're doing all these things. And so if they turn their life around, they're like, okay, I see some works. You're trying. You're trying to change. You're trying to repent, if you will. Okay, now that's lining up with what you're saying. I still can't prove whether you're a Christian or not because I can't really see inside your heart. 
but your actions are matching your words. And so at least in front of me, okay, yeah, you're backing yourself up. You're doing what you say you're doing. And so that's what most people, if you don't have a lordship view or a reformed view, if you don't look at this passage and say, oh, this proves that I'm a genuine Christian if I do these good works, if you don't take that view, this is the view you most likely take. All right, this is what most people will take if they reject Reformed theology. I held this view, and it's, it's a decent view. When, when I'm thinking about, okay, justifying my faith, my words, my belief before men with actions, I can't see anything really biblically inaccurate with that because I'm not saying my works prove I'm a Christian, at least in front of God. I'm just merely saying my works are allowing you to see the, you know, whether what I say is truly held by me or not, if you know what I mean. But when we're looking at this, again, the context is not about whether your, wor- your words match up with your works and whether you're a true Christian or not. It's, again, about the profitability of our faith. Verse 14, verse 16, the surrounding context, the book context, the aspect of having a practical, active, living faith. And so again, it really doesn't make sense why we would insert this view of, hey, yeah, I can back up my words, my faith, my words uh, with my works. It could be that. It might be that. But Dr. Zane Hodges, I call this the Hodges view. Uh, He has a different take on this as well. Remember, one of the big disagreements in this passage is where does James stop talking and where does the objector start talking? And then where does James pick it back up? Dr. Zane Hodges believes that both verses, 18 and 19, are all from the objector. All from the objector. Now, what he's going to say is, because again, when we're looking at this in the surrounding context, James just got done rebuking them for not living their faith actively and for not allowing their faith to profit other people. And what we're going to see here down in uh, verse number 22 where uh, faith with works was made perfect, it's an aspect of maturity, growth. Dr. Hodges is pointing out the fact that he's rebuking them saying your faith should be maturing. Sanctification. Like you were saying, Bill, growing, becoming more like Christ. He says that the objector, the interlocutor in verse 18, what he sees this, if he could paraphrase it, he would paraphrase it as the objector saying, oh, it's absurd to try to look at my faith and see how strong my faith is by what I do. Now, this is what he sees this passage as. He says that it doesn't appear to be a connection to each other. In the Grace New Testament commentary, he sort of sums it up like this. Faith and works are not really related to each other the way that you say they are, James, because again, what is a prophet if you say you have faith, but you have not works? Does faith save him? What does it profit? Verse 17, faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. So James says, if you say you have faith, but you're not doing anything, you really don't have a strong, vital faith. Your faith is immature, And this is what Dr. Hodges says. He says, the objector is saying, don't criticize the vitality of my faith because I don't feed the homeless or visit the orphans and the widows and their afflictions and things of that nature. 
again in verse chapter one. A lot of this has to be kept in line. If James is writing something or any of these epistle authors are writing something, it's probably because that something needs to be heard by that audience. And so if James is writing in verse 26 that if anybody seems to be religious and doesn't bridle his tongue but sees his heart, his religion's vain. James didn't just throw that in there. James wrote that because there's an issue with them having a pure religion, if you will, and not controlling their tongues. And he says in verse 27, he says, okay, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is to visit fatherless the widows in their affliction and keep himself unspotted from the world. James wrote that because there was a problem with those Christians he's writing to. And so with that, this is where Dr. Hodges gets the idea of the objector is objecting James who says, you have a dead faith. Your faith isn't helping anybody. It should. And they're saying, James, you can't judge my faith and whether it's profiting anybody just because I don't do X, Y, or Z. Then he sees verse 20 is where James picks up his dialogue again, and he calls him a vain man. And he says, wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead. So this one actually keeps the context, the surrounding context and the book context in mind as far as what the audience is doing and what James is talking about, the profitability of their Christian faith. Is it active? Is it lively? Again, we've already admitted nothing about James is soteriological. And so it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense that there'd be a soteriological argument built in just randomly in chapter two. When we get to these examples we're about to get to with Abraham and Rahab, these examples are not about the genuineness of their conversion. These examples, I would argue, shows really the pinnacle of their faith, the maturity of their faith. So within these three views, you have the reform view, the vindication view, and the Hodges view. And if you were to ask me, I probably would lean more towards the Hodges view for the main purpose that it keeps the context in mind. But like I said, with this passage, there's a lot of disagreement as far as what James is trying to say, even within those that don't hold a reformed view. There's still a lot of disagreement. So that's where I'm saying it could be the vindication view, could be the Hodges view, could be a different view, but I know it's not the reform view because that doesn't line with the rest of scripture. Will? I don't know. Contextual view. <laughs> you know? I mean, if I, if I had to put like a different label on it as opposed to the Hodges view, and he's the first one that I've actually uh, read that really takes this view, I'd probably have to take it, like it says there, the context of profitability. The, yeah, I would say vitality or profitability view. Yeah, because that really paints the picture. Of, it, it keeps the context of it's about the profitableness of one's faith or the action, the activeness of one's faith. Whereas the vindication is more about me, you know, actions speak louder than words. 
I can say, I'm going to go help you paint your house all day long, but until I do it, it's just words. So the vindication view has the aspect, okay, no, I'm here painting, the ro- you know, painting your house, whatever the case is, so I'm vindicating my words before you, not before God, but before you. And so there's a difference there, and it could be that view, but I would probably say the profitability view, vitality view. <laughs> oh, that would be good, because Hodges has a lot of great stuff. <laughs> One thing... Okay, I say vitality or profitability view, but with these we have to remember again, eternal life is a free gift. We have eternal life the moment we believe. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption, and we cannot perish or be plucked out of the Father's hand. Works in this passage and every other passage as a Christian does not reveal relationship with God it reveals fellowship or discipleship with God. If I'm beating my kids every day and cheating on my wife, that means not necessarily that I'm not a Christian, but that I need to be discipled. I need somebody to come poke me in the face and say, look, you're living wrong. This is not what Jesus Christ has for you. You're going to ruin your family and your life if you keep doing this. And so there's that aspect. doesn't mean I'm not a Christian, but it means I have to clean some stuff up. I'm not living right. And so it's all about discipleship. 21 through 25. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered up Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God who was puted unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified, not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by her works when she had received the messengers and sent them out another way. This is where a lot of people gravitate towards the vindication view. You see, Abraham, you know, he's father of faith, and he said he believed in God, and he took this magnificent action. He vindicated his faith to other people, and that's what a lot of people really gravitate to. When we look at this, James picks up this dialogue, and he's responding back to this diatribe, the objector, and he uses the historical accounts of Abraham and Rahab. Not to reveal the genuineness of their faith, but to reveal the strength of their faith. Works reveal the strength, not genuineness. Okay, that's a big difference. There's a difference between salvation and discipleship. Let's look at something. James uses Mount Moriah in Genesis 22 as an example of Abraham justifying himself with works. It says Abraham was justified when he offered Isaac on Mount Moriah. Well, wait a minute. Abraham was saved all the way back in Genesis 15, 6. If not, back in Genesis 12. Jerry. What's that? What one, the top or the bottom? Works reveal the strength of our faith, not the genuineness. So in other words, works reveal how strong is my faith. If, if God is asking me to sacrifice my son upon Mount Moriah, is my faith strong enough like Abraham to say, God's going to be able to resurrect my, my son if he promises it. So that reveals the strength of my faith as opposed to if God's saying that and it's like, oh, no. You see what I mean? It doesn't mean Abraham wasn't saved, the genuineness. It, mean, it shows that Abraham had a strong faith in God and what he was able to do. Right, and, and we're going to unpack this here in a minute. Yep. Yeah. 
that would assume that faith would have to be genuine because if you don't execute, if you're executing faith, it's got to be genuine regardless of this trend. Right. Ready? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Freddie. Can we, let me finish this up and then we'll get back to 1 Corinthians 6, okay? okay. <laughs> so let's unpack this. The strength of faith, not its genuineness, because I still have about 30 slides and we got 12 minutes. I think it's possible. It's possible because I haven't walked away from this chair. So, all right, so remember, Abraham got saved about 20 years before this event. Abraham was already saved. This can't be the fact that oh, Abraham's proving that he's an actual Christian. No, 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 because after Abraham was saved, he lied to the Pharaoh. He had this carnal plan of having a child with Hagar, who was Ishmael. Oh, and then again, he didn't learn the first time. He lied to Abimelech about Sarah being his wife. All these things happened after Abraham was saved, had the imputed righteousness. So this reveals the fact that we could be a Christian and do some pretty bad things. My question is, why does James use this illustration of Abraham, of Mount Moriah? Why couldn't God have used Abraham when he rescued Lot in Genesis 14 when Lot was captured? Or what about Abraham having faith in God's promise of having Isaac? What about when Abraham petitioned on behalf of uh, the people as far as God sparing Sodom and Gomorrah and then had some uh, angels go in to save and pull Lot out, why did God, well, God choose to use the Mount Moriah? Because to me, the Mount Moriah was the pinnacle of Abraham's faith. Mount Moriah clearly revealed how strong Abraham's faith was. That's why it is in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. And based off that, we're told that he's called the friend of God. Matter of fact, we see it in Second Chronicles and Isaiah 41 uh, that even in the Old Testament, he is called the friend of God. He was not called a friend of God as far as we know according to Scripture when he left Ur, when God said, pick up and go. And by faith, he went. We're not told he was called a friend of God there or when he believed God's promises of the covenant or when he believed in Isaac's birth. We were told, according to James, that it was Mount Moriah when he was called the friend of God. It's interesting. Friendship doesn't reveal the position in your of the family, but the depth of fellowship. And again, it's like salvation and discipleship. So many times those are conflated. We think to be a disciple is the same thing as being a Christian. No. You can't be a disciple without being a Christian, but you can be a Christian without being a disciple. Because being a disciple just means you're trying to live and learn of Christ and like Christ. The strength of Abraham's faith was seen in his works. It profited two groups. Profited himself and it profited other people. Jesus Christ says, you are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. So if we are vocal about our faith, people know we're Christians and then we're doing some good things. Okay, yes, we can vindicate our words by our actions, but then people can see us and be like, okay, he says he's a, he loves God and he's doing all these things on, in the name of God. Yeah, he is a friend of God. And so our actions of our faith can bless other people and profit us as well. What's also interesting is in this same book, 
James calls these same Christians, he doesn't say there are some adulterers. He says, ye, adulterers and adulteresses. He calls them adulterers. Obviously, this is speaking spiritually in the fact that they uh, love the world more than God. So it is possible for a Christian to unfortunately do this. When we look at this, it does somewhat seem to support the Hodges view or the vitality profitability view that James is rebuking them of their profitability of their faith and them saying, oh, you can't judge how vital my, you know, how lively my faith is by what I do or don't do. It somewhat aligns with that. Then it also reveals that a Christian can be an enemy of God. So many times people see the word enemy and think that a Christian can't be an enemy. Oh, he says it right there. A Christian can be an enemy, and all that simply means is we're in opposition with God. If God tells us to go left and we go right, guess what? We're in opposition to the will of God. So we can be at enmity with God. So that's why it's so important to grow and to mature and to build upon our faith. The justification by works reveals the strength and maturity. Now, when we get to Rahab, Rahab's works, again, reveals her faith, uh, the level of her faith in God also. Because what happened with the story of Rahab in Joshua chapter 2, I believe it is. She received the spies. She already knew about God. She was already uh, believing in God and that God's judgment was coming. She did not believe in the protection of Jericho or the guards or the king or anybody else. She believed in the protection of God. She believed in the spies keeping their word. She had a level of faith that she was able to take action with it. If she didn't have a mature, strong faith, she may have been like, okay, what time are you guys leaving? So, coming here, seven? Okay, I'm gonna leave at six. And then she get herself out. No, what happened? The spy said, leave this red scarlet cord out your window. And when we see it, we're gonna make sure that that room is not destroyed. Those people aren't destroyed. So what happens? She stays there, brings her family in there, and they're spared. She didn't take it upon herself to leave. Her level of faith was strong enough that she said, you know what? God told me to wait. I'm going to wait. Her faith profited two groups, herself, protection, others, spies. And then finally, we get to verse 26. James sums it up. For as body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. He bookends this about the, the life aspect, the life and death of faith common understanding of this verse, again, is your reform teaching, and what you will most likely hear and read is just as life, just as a spirit gives life to the body, so too works gives life to the faith. And if you don't have a spirit, then the body is dead. And so you don't have that life inside of you. And so if you don't have works in your faith, your faith is dead, and you don't have this real faith. That is what a common view of this teaches. And so what's interesting about that, this actually, if you want to keep this illustration, that's actually an Arminian view, not a Calvinist view. Arminians teach that you can be saved and then lose your salvation. Calvinists say that if you are saved, then you will persevere to the end. You can't lose it because you're elect. You'll persevere to the end. This illustration that a lot of people use is actually an Arminian view. 
Because if we're going to use the idea of a dead body, guess what? That body was once alive. And if that body was once alive, it once had the spirit. And when the body died, the spirit goes away. And so now they say because the body doesn't have the spirit, there is no, but that body was once alive. And so it's actually an Arminian view that the Calvinist Reformed actually teach because they once had that spirit. It's interesting. But both of those views are disingenuous with the context of what's being said. It has nothing to do with the fact of if I don't have a spirit within my body, then I'm dead. Guess what? The body is still in existence. Just because there's no spirit in a body, if you go to the morgue right now, you'll see a whole bunch of bodies there. The body's still in existence. It might not have the spirit. That's what James is saying. Your faith may still be in existence, but you may not have that works. You have to have the activity of your works to go ahead and profit other people. So when he's drawing this out, the dead body and, and the spirit, he's saying the body is still there in existence. You can see the body, you can touch the body, but it has no life in it. There's no activity. You can have your genuine faith, but there's no activity with it. The, the body's not being profited by the spirit. Your faith isn't being profited by the works. You see how that fits a lot better with all this? So in essence, James is summing up this diatribe with the illustration that just as the spirit reveals vitality and profitability, so do the works. Again, like I said, it's not that the body doesn't exist, but that the body can't be profitable. And so in other words, faith can't be profitable without our works. Again, it's all bookend. What does it profit? The old man say he has faith and have, have not works. So this passage in 18 through 26, again, when we get to these passages that seem somewhat unclear and we're really wrestling, I have no idea what God is saying. We have to take what we truly know is very clear to us and see if that sheds light into those very unclear passages. When we're looking at this objector, when the objector says that their faith is inactive, it doesn't reveal, uh, the objector is saying it doesn't reveal the inactivity of their faith, but James is saying it does according to the Hodges view or the profitability view. Now, we could look at the vindication view again, but uh, yeah, that could be possible. The examples of Abraham and Rahab are not examples of them having genuineness of faith and proving themselves. If anything, it was the pentacle of their faith. Because when we get to the verse in Abraham, in verse 22, he says, did you see how works with his faith was made perfect? Complete, mature is what it means. And so the level of our faith is going to be dictated on the works that we do because of our faith. And then the role of works in a Christian's life is not a litmus test on whether or not you and I are saved and truly a Christian. They are actually the works that we do for profiting other people, our community, and ourselves as well. And so if you're asking me, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, what do these passages mean? It's all about what does it profit? Though man say yes, faith not works, can faith save him? And when we looked at that, we looked at that word save. That word save has various definitions. 
It could mean eternal life or eternal uh, hell, and I don't believe that's what it is. It can mean that physical destruction or judgment. And when we looked at that at that time, there is an aspect of judgment seat of Christ that it can save a believer from being rebuked at the judgment seat of Christ, loss of rewards, which is what a lot of Bible verses talk about as well. And so that's that, James 2, 14 through 26. That's my thoughts, my studies on it. Uh, like I said, next week we might have a sit down and just really go over all this together as a whole, bring thoughts, ideas, discussions, whatever the case is. Uh, I do want to go ahead and close the word of prayer, and then uh, we'll look at what Freddie is talking about back there. So let us pray. God, I thank you uh, for this evening again, and, and just for preserving this letter uh, that James had written to the Christians. Thank you, Lord, that our salvation is predicated on what you do and what you have done and not anything by what I must try to do. Thank you for the surety of our salvation, Lord, which is only in you. God, I pray that you would just allow us to reflect upon this and see how vital is our faith, how mature is our faith, and have we reached the pinnacle of uh, doing things because of our faith. If not, Lord, I pray you just allow us to continue to grow in sanctification and to get closer to you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.